VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, August the 24th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue. 273-5211 or elsewhere it's toll free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626 alright well you know where I'm going to begin the show first off big thanks to Tim Powers for sitting in for me yesterday the day after the Stanley Cup parade Alex Newhook Day here in the province so I, I know we've talked a lot about it but it was such a joyous occasion it was truly remarkable, not only the numbers of people that came out, but just the mood and the smiles and the applause and the cheers and the pride that was felt throughout the entirety of the parade route and throughout the morning, whether it be a Confederation building and at Bannerman Park where we had a big load of Avalon Celtics players. Of course, uh, Alex and Abby were Avalon Celtics themselves. Congregate there, and one thing of note, so you see so many of the people get the cup. And they do indeed do some public events. You know, uh, Nathan McKinnon took it to a retiree's home to meet some vets, which was a really classy move. And a lot of them spent some fairly quiet time with family and friends and what have you. It was obvious that Alex and Abby and the family were intent on sharing this moment with as many people as they possibly could. It really speaks to the kind of young fellow he is. So it was just <laughs> an amazing day. And I'm still on cloud nine, to be honest. And he's he's not belonged to me. But, you know, between our old friends and stuff, I had the joy, the, the privilege to be on the portion of Water Street right across the street from all the boys that Alex had in town. His buddies from Ontario and BC and otherwise where he played in college, of course. And that moment where he pumped the cup over his head, which he must have done a thousand times. No, work, no need to work on any arm strength for a while, Alex. When he popped the cup over his head right there on water, the explosion of cheers. And I would think the smattering of tears was just overwhelming. It was truly, absolutely remarkable. And there were so many people around, and George Street was packed. And what a day. There was one event that wasn't on the public schedule, though. We hopped on a couple of party buses from Duckworth Street, and we went to the D.F. Barnes Arena. And good on Nicky Vinicum, the project manager for the Stanley Cup visit. There was a ball hockey game scheduled. None of the players knew this was coming. A ball hockey game between a bunch of young fellas from here versus Alex's pals from the mainland. Team Newfoundland and Labrador versus the mainland. They didn't know what's coming. So they go into the rink. They go to the dressing room. Lo and behold, in all the stalls is a jersey with their name on it, a number, ready to roll. It was a really, really fun time and a great idea. So don't want to leave anyone out, but between the Newhook family and Abby got lots of love throughout the day, too, and deservedly so. So the city played a role, the province played a role, and yes, I just mentioned the project manager, Nick Finnicum, the family, Scotty Neal, uh, Jeff King, Glenn Seymour, whoever played a role, and Deb, uh, Debbie Neal and others who were really intimately involved, Daphne Vinicum, they just did so much to make that such a special day for everybody, that bravo to them. And I'm glad I was able to be there and soak it all in. Dawson Mercer was there at the party at O'Reilly's, and we can only hope that one of these days Dawson Mercer and the folks in Bay Roberts and surrounding area can have that experience. I'll be there with bells on. Nice young fella, real pleasure to meet him. And the folks that were representing the Colorado Avalanche, who were on tour with all the various players as they received the cup for their day of glory, they really were quite pleased and maybe a little bit overwhelmed with just how great the event was here. So anyway, I had to get that off my chest because it was just something else. But here comes the parade through the pedestrian mall, which is scheduled to close, I think, on the 5th of September. 
there's no real need to close it as long as the weather remains as beautiful as it has been. Now, I know it doesn't suit all the businesses in the area, and there is a bit of winners and losers, you know, Duckworth versus water, but even if it was just on the weekends or something, because it seems just so fabulous that anyway, you want to talk about it. We can do it. Switching gears, a bit of rugby this weekend. Good opportunity for rugby fans to get over to the Swatters pitch on Saturday afternoon at 4 p.m. to see Canada's classic women's team play against the Rock senior women's team. It's the first time the 15-member uh, classic women's team will play, and it's the first time in a long time that the Rock senior women got a chance to play on home soil so you'll get to see some high quality international players kick off at 4 p.m but you have to buy the ticket beforehand just go to eventbrite and you can find your ticket opportunity there also there's a meet and greet at the sandman hotel between 6 and 10 meet some of the classics there's going to be some auction items on hand and there should be some fun rugby at the pitch swatters club saturday afternoon 4 p.m okay let's get to get a load of this guy so it's one thing to have the adventurous spirit but it was three years ago today in 2019 that American explorer Victor Vescovo, he became the first man since the invention of the submersible to visit all the deepest points in all five of the world's oceans when he finally touched on the Malloy Deep, which is in the Arctic Ocean. So he went to the Sundra Trench and, of course, notably um, Mariana Trench, the deepest point in any of the oceans in the world. That's 30, almost 36,000 feet deep. So he's done all that. Plus, the man has uh, summited all of the seven summits, the tallest mountain peak on all seven continents. He also has been to outer space when he wrote in the Blue Origin, Beyond the Atmosphere, on the 4th of June of 2021. Victor Vescovo, the deepest, the first man to touch both magnetic, magnetic pole, poles as well. So talk about that. The deepest, the highest, unbelievable. Victor Vescovo. All right, and you know, we've mentioned Amelia Earhart with the connection with the province, but it was today in history, 1932, the first woman to fly solo across the United States nonstop. Flew from Los Angeles to Newark. Imagine if we had a direct flight to and fro Newark. I will get into that in a second. And also today is Ukrainian Independence Day. It was today that the Ukraine uh, declared itself independent from the Soviet Union back in 1991. And here we are in the sixth month of that war. Okay, so we just mentioned, boy, it'd be nice to have a direct flight here to Dublin and back, or here to Newark and back, but... You know the circumstances there. So, you know, just imagine the reaction we'd get from American officials, elected officials in particular, if we were telling them what they could and should be doing at the border. Now, there's always got to be cooperation and collaboration. Our ally to the south, our largest trading partner, our friends, the United States. They're playing pretty hardball on some of the travel issues. A couple of them, I get it. You know, the Canadian American Business Council has launched a new campaign saying, travel like it's 2019. Okay. They point to a couple of things. They're calling on Ottawa to scrap the Arrive Can app. Of course, the mandatory pre-screening tool. I've used it. I had no problem with it. It's not to say that it might not be problematic for some, but I had no issues with it. There was a glitch where it sent out emails to folks who had recorded being vaccinated and provided proof of vaccination, of course, then allowing them to not have to quarantine. And I think there's a fair question to be asked about the whole quarantine business anyway. I've got my third shot. I came back from holidays, and lo and behold, a few days later, I tested positive. So, of course, it's still possible for anybody to get it. So the quarantine, I think, is a debatable issue. But the Arrive Can app seems to be a political polarizing issue as opposed to an actual one, for me anyway. I don't know what role it plays in slowing anyone down. Just remember, the passport declaration, or pardon me, the, uh, the customs declaration in years past was a long form, simply meant that people were, you know, trying to bum a pen off people that they're sharing a flight with, and it was no less time-consuming than I think what ArriveCan does. 
I mean, all the information that we provided on that long form is part of the app. You know, people say government tracking you and what have you. Your cell phone tracks you anyway. People are happy enough to use a coffee shop app, which knows more about you than ArriveCan does. Your passport and the customs declaration said where you were, when you were, why you were there, what you declared upon return. And, of course, they always could have added vaccination status. So I'm not really sure. I completely understand everyone's massive problem with ArriveCan. But if you've got one, you know what to do. You can call the program. They're also called on the government, and this one is absolutely fair ball. There's a backlog of about 350,000 applications for the Canada-US, what they call the Trusted Traveler System, called Nexus. We know there's been so many hurdles. The airlines themselves were simply not prepared for what was going to be the obvious spike in demand for air travel. Screening officers, CBSA, all of these things combined has made for some concerns in many of the airports, notably Toronto's Pearson. But ArriveCan, I'm not quite sure. I entirely understand the big uproar about it but if you want to share your perspective on it we can absolutely do it here on the show but there's a couple of travel notes and of course we haven't figured it out yet and then you look in the province of alberta you know on one hand people are talking having more and more sick days provided by their private employer the provincial government municipal governments and yes the federal government and talk about 10 sick days in alberta what they've seen is there's a summer bonus program that can pay up to as much as 3900 dollars, and as a result People are thinking that they should and they want to and they will go to work when they're not feeling well to qualify for the bonus. So setting it up where, you know, we're told even prior to the pandemic, stay home if you're sick. Then because of all the shortages for staffing, the delays in the airports, baggage and otherwise, bonus programs to go to work, you know full well. People are going to say, well, it's just the sniffles. I got a bit of an allergic, a bit of an allergy going here this morning, but I'm going to work because I'm getting that $3,900 worth of bonus and you know the deal. All right, let's keep going. So yesterday... I don't even really know what to call it. So the German Chancellor Schultz and Prime Minister Trudeau, other provincial politicians, federal politicians, and a yaffle of really heavy business hitters from Germany and abroad. They were in Stephenville to sign what has been referred to as a joint, what are they calling it? A joint agreement, a joint declaration of intent. All right. Look, it's not in an effort to poo-poo or to push back unnecessarily so about anything. But there's still not much in the way of details going on here. No uh, specific reference to World Energy GH2, even though that's the notable proposal here in the province. You know, with their 164 wind turbines, access to the port of Stephenville, all the rest of it. It might be good, but because it's something new, very much unlike when we see announcements regarding mining or oil, for instance, because we've been there, we see the possibilities. Now, we'll always have squabbles about where some of the work will be done, you know, for oil production platforms or what have you, but we don't know much about hydrogen, so consequently, people are rightfully so asking questions. Still cannot get a firm grasp on how much water is going to be needed for this proposal. And this is only one of several. And they think that the 164 wind turbines and the ammonia in the hydrogen plant can maybe triple in size. So that's still a massive question. There are environmental concerns. There are eyesore concerns. They talk about the numbers of jobs that may be available, and that's all fine and dandy. But we don't really know how much of this is going to come to pass right here where we live. One of the things that I think when you look at some of the numbers that are bandied about, they're talking about potential for export by 24 or 25. Okay. All good, but how do we get there? 
How many jobs will absolutely be created here? You know, the Germans have a history inside the wind business. So between the monorails and the turbines themselves, where are they going to be built? Will we see any jobs on that front, or will we simply see supply ships come across, dump them off, and some construction jobs happen here? And how many full-time jobs in the operational world will be created? What does a royalty look like? So again, to not ask the questions, I think, would be completely ridiculous. In addition to that, so there's an Australian giant here, Fortescue Metals. They've got a market capitalization of over $58 billion. They're looking at opportunities in the province. And we know that some electric battery opportunities like North Volt AB and the deal that they signed with Valet, these are things that are happening. Much of it is probably very good news. But still, you know, are we so far out in front in an effort to help Germany with their woes concerning the amount of fossil fuels imported from Russia, for instance? Okay. And so people will ask this question. You know, why Canada? You know, why doesn't Germany look closer to home? In the Nordic countries, for instance, with their access to water and wind and deep sea ports and proximity to Germany itself. It's all good. Irvings are ramping up their hydrogen opportunities uh, in New Brunswick as well. And in some of the news stories, you'll see the reference to this word, sprint. It's a sprint. It's a new business in this country for the most part. And so, so many provinces, so many businesses clamoring to be out in front, the tip of the spear. Will we possibly be in a sprint not knowing exactly who we're passing the baton to? Not knowing exactly what's going on regarding opportunities, royalties, uh, return to the province? How much water will be used? Whether or not we're simply going to lease the crown land if the business doesn't become viable in the long term, it reverts back to us. There's still a lot of unknowns. It might be great. It might be something that's most welcomed in different parts of the province for job creation, wealth creation, expand the tax base, you know all the rest of it, but we're not really sure about how this works. And it'd be nice to know. But if you want to take it on, even if you're full in, you are a proponent and you are on side. Hydrogen might be a big part of the transition. I don't know. I don't know a lot about hydrogen. But I know some of the answers that, to the looming questions are not necessarily on hand. Okay. Let's go. And I, I think there was a caller to Tim yesterday asking this interesting question. If Risley and others behind World Energy GH2 say they can produce the power at about five cents a kilowatt hour, how come we can't have access to it? Now, more power on our grid outside of Muskrat Falls may indeed put us in an unfavorable position with price per kilowatt hour, but the summary answer to his question, why can't we get a look at that power at that price, is because Muskrat Falls. Pretty much. If you want to take it on from any angle, let's do exactly that today. Moving on. This is concerning. So Eastern Health is looking at some irregularities. They're having a preliminary look at diagnostic imaging reviews, all because of a notification saying that some of the viewing workstations did not meet recommended technical standards. They're going to contact the patients who are impacted or affected by this particular issue, but this is concerning. So there'll be an update from Central Health uh, at 1.30 this afternoon, Ireland time. The other regional health authorities will provide an update at some point next week. You hear some of the quotes from the people who may indeed be impacted. And this one lady says, the anxiety of the known is one of the worst. She can deal with the facts, I can deal with the news, but it's the not knowing that impacts her the most. That makes a lot of sense to me. That makes a lot of sense. And then you harken back to what was the Cameron Inquiry, the Commission of Inquiry on Hormone Receptor Testing. 
there were all kinds of erroneous and delayed test results to breast cancer patients between 1997 and 2005. There was all kinds of reports about shoddy oversight, processes in laboratories, and just how many women, some of which I'm still in contact with to, uh, to this day. So these are looming issues. We talk about doctor shortages and nurses shortages and utilizing nurse practitioners and LPNs and now potentially problems with the viewing, the technical standards for looking at the diagnostic imaging of mammograms. So this is a big story that we will, of course, keep our eyes on very closely. And if you're impacted, regardless if you're a patient in central health or otherwise, and they say not to contact your primary care provider because they probably don't have very much to do about this and they won't be intimately involved in knowing what happened with these potential incorrect diagnoses. So that story is still just developing, but it does really bring us back to the Cameron Inquiry extraordinary stuff between 97 and 2005 just how many women were impacted and their families because of incorrect erroneous or delayed test results and now potentially an issue with the review of the mammograms boy oh boy okay which brings upon another conversation albeit a little bit different is about all the talk in this country about the potential for a two-tier system and privatization now there's already two-tier healthcare in different areas of, health, of universal healthcare in Canada. There was a recent ruling by the BC Court of Appeal, which upheld the Canadian ban, what they're calling, which is not really true, a Canadian ban on two-tier healthcare. But the judges in their decision also said it may impose real hardship and suffering on patients stuck in the government queue. There's a difference between a private MRI clinic versus a private family medicine clinic. One of the issues I've seen spoken to regarding, for instance, family medicine clinics, which in primary care is key. There's a shortage of family doctors across the country. There's now an, an official uh, nurse representative at the federal government. What do they call it? Uh, the official registered nurses advocate? I, I wish I had the proper title. I apologize. It's the first time since 2005 where that position was always in place, was axed, and now has been renewed. The private medicine clinic is an interesting one because not only the shortages, but inside those clinics with the ability to possibly not charge cash on the barrelhead because that contravenes Canada Health Act, but to bill MCP in this province. They would have the ability to turn people away, some of the most complex needs patients. And the uh, public system would have to take them on, which they already do. But they would be picking and choosing their patients. Maybe take some of the easiest, less complicated patients and simply have them on their patient roster, which further complicates and exacerbates problems in the public system. So that's an interesting one when we talk about it. But unfortunately, like most conversations, when you talk about expansion of even blood collection or an MRI clinic is vastly different than other areas of healthcare. Immediately the conversation goes to, we cannot have US style healthcare. And you're right, we can't and we shouldn't, we should avoid it at all costs. But inside our world of universal healthcare, approximately two thirds of Canadians have private health insurance. And what do we use it for? Prescription drugs, dental care. Maybe some coverage to get a new pair of eyeglasses, what have you. So we're all paying, or two-thirds of us are paying for private health care insurance, but not a whole lot of use inside of health care. As I said, some subsidizing of your prescription drugs, some dental care, and maybe a little bit on your spectacles. So I think that conversation, I mean, it's been bubbling and percolating for a long time, but if you want to take it on, let's do it. All right, this is ridiculous, this story. The federal government and trying to do something about the conversation around racism. 
So they awarded the Community Media Advocacy Center a contract of $133,000, and that's now been suspended. Because one of the senior consultants involved, this guy named Laith Maruth, sent out what is absolutely anti-Semitic, vile tweets. So the government will say, or the uh, Department of Heritage will say, well, we hired a group. We didn't know who would be working on it or who would say what. Isn't that kind of important? to know what you're doing, who you're getting a bed with, with a contract with a value of $103,000, $33,000. It's good that it's been suspended, but to know what the messaging is going to look like, who's going to be working on it, and who are they? What's their background? This guy's obviously a problem, right? So if you want to take it on, we can do it. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOSIM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlinefeosim.com. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's get it going. Today, 1971, Lighthouse released this single, One Fine Warning. When we come back, let's have exactly that. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Okay, let's go. Line number one, Sam, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Doing well. How about you? Good, good. I guess you're glaring about all the news that's going on in the and Port Port Peninsula. Well, I'm trying to fo- follow along as best I can. I'm trying to understand some of the ins and outs and the moving parts and the details, but they're scanty. There's not a whole lot to latch on to. And like I said, it might be really good, but it might be concerning on a bunch of levels. So I'd love to know more. Well, I guess you mean it's probably the same start with the Hebron, pro- uh, Hebron the Hibernia project. We didn't know what was in store for us. I guess it's pretty much the same thing for here, for the Port Port Peninsula, Steamville area. It's a learning process, and it has to be taken with precaution, but we need this here for the area. We need this hydrogen engine for work, for services, and fossil fuel has to come to an end because, it's, as you see, with this COVID and all the stuff, everything, when we, everything was shut down, they can see the, the healing in, in the ozone layer. So we know that fossil fuel has an effect. We got diseases unknown being brought forward to us, the monkeypox, COVID, COVID. And plus, we also would have a scene in our wildlife with avian flu with the birds. So we think that global warming is all has something to do with this here, and fossil fuel is playing a big part. Yeah, okay. I think people, by and large, understand that. And I do get, if I was in a region that needed a real shot in the arm, some economic uptick, the report said, or the media release anyway, said the company is expected to deliver 1,800 direct construction jobs, 300 direct operation jobs, and 3,500 indirect jobs. Those are all big numbers and very encouraging numbers. But inside the whatever we're going to refer to as the you know memorandum of understanding a joint declaration of intent you know some of the construction jobs are what and are they guaranteed like we hear about person years worth of employment and then work for oil production platforms or what have you then the big racket begins about will we do them here at Bull Iron will we do them in Marysan will they end up in Spain will they end up in Korea and that begins begins the contractual uh, argument or eventual agreement so it would be nice to know like Germany has a track record in wind they got the yards the capacity the understanding and the workforce about building the towers themselves building the turbine blades themselves so are we going to have that here or will they simply be shipped here and we're simply putting things together a prefab turbine i don't know it'd be nice to know though yeah, as far as i know that there, a lot of this here is being shipped in right as far as i know that's what I, we've been told anyway and uh, for our environment there i mean it's our environment is not much left on the Port of Port Peninsula anyway, and there's in the place where they're placing the turbines, there's not much 
growth there, there's probably low brush and barrens mostly. So I guess, and they're willing to replant trees or berries in the areas that they use. So I don't think there's a much of an environmental impact besides the soil to look at because it's so huge. Right? I mean, that's about the only disadvantage I think that it was for. But, I mean, the big thing is, what's in it for us? We need some incentives here. I live at the section where all this traffic is passing by. It has to pass by my community, in my district, uh, Piccadilly, Abrams Grove, Ship Grove. All the traffic has to pass here. What's in it for us? What incentives are we going to get? We know this project's going to last a couple of years, and then what? We mean there's so much that we questions that we need to know, and we need answers. But we have to do this right. I agree with the project, but we have to do this right, right with precautions, safety, and incentives for the people of Bay St. George, Port of Port, and Steamboat. And Steamboat right now, the town is dying. Port of Port being Steamboat, that's where we do all our businesses. This is where all of our services do. We need the town, and town needs us. We have to work together on this here, and we have to make sure this is done right with the companies, with the government. It all has to be done right. As of now, we're speaking, I think the environmentalist has uh, doing an assessment in the, in the area right now going on the Port of Port Peninsula to get this here done fast as possible and get the wheels turning. Well, no specific mention of the proposal in Stephenville, which is absolutely interesting because they've been sent back to the drawing board to provide more details, to uh, have the environmental assessment. All the while, we just signed a real massive potential deal with Germany without any capacity to deliver on it. Well, certainly not in this province. Irvings have expanded their hydrogen opportunities in New Brunswick. That can absolutely play a role. I'm sure there will be other parts of the country that look at these types of proposals. Many people have come knocking on the door here for Tescue Metals, their massive backstop of billions of dollars. Of course, John Risley and his group, there's a proposal in Argentia. But just in your region, just imagine if everything came to fruition around the same time. The Stephenville Airport and all the jobs promise and the economic upside associated with that if it ever comes to pass that the Diamond Group gets off the ground the way they hope to, then this, then who knows what other uh, jobs are created. And, of course, the it's the multiplier effect. If you have more people working, then, of course, you have more b- business opportunities to grow as well. So the indirect jobs is a real crucial part of this. But for me right now, I'm not all in or all out because I don't really know enough about it to make any firm declaration, even though I'm sure many people don't care what my declaration might be. But I'd like to know more, and I think a lot of people would. Yes, no we definitely do need to know more, but there's a lot that we know of, of already. Like from my experience, I've, uh, I lived out in, in uh, British Columbia for uh, worked out there for 13 years, and I lived out there for seven of it. And I was uh, right by windmills, the Dorky Reserve, and the quality uh, windmill farm in Tumbler Ridge. And uh, there is no sounds coming from it, and there is no vibrations coming from it. And I, I have, from what I've seen, there's no dead birds around her. All I've seen was grass. And there's farms, I mean, and ranches, and these windmills are everywhere, so it really has no effect with day-to-day life as much like the, the electrical poles that we have up in towers that was in the area, so it really has no effect on anything. I mean, actually, uh, with the with the towers and electrical poles, uh, birds have been nesting in, in these... <laughs> in the top of these uh, towers and that. But, I mean, for the windmill farms, it's not really going that fast, so I can't see it hurting anything. I mean, and plus, uh, what I've been hearing, that they're putting up a detector to, uh, if a bird or any kind of prey comes close to it, it will stop and until the bird goes into a certain distance in the opposite direction away from the windmill. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of precautions. It has to be a lot of precautions, 
And uh, for drinking water, as far as I've heard, that uh, they're going to look after us for the drinking water. We always would have good drinking water. That's one of the guarantee. But you mean the towns will get taxes, but the local service districts, we're not corporate, so we won't get no taxes. But we're looking at hoping to clean up our environment uh, to help with uh, sanitations and, and, like you said, with clean water. So you mean there's things that we can get incentives besides besides collecting tax money because we can't collect tax money, right? Appreciate the time, Sam. Thanks for this. Have a good day. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I mean, in this world, there will be projects in various countries that are providing power that is not strictly based on fossil fuels. It's happening already, and it's going to be further accelerated. So whether you see more nuclear options, whether you see green hydrogen or gray hydrogen or blue hydrogen or natural gas, this is all going to be part of the equation. We all know it to be true. And we may indeed be perfectly positioned to be a big part of it. We know what it's meant for the province when we talk about oil and gas, even though we haven't really done anything with gas, but with oil. We know what the potential when we have the wind in the water, the proximity to market and the deep sea ports. I mean, we got it. We got it all. We just make sure that we get it all, whatever we can do to maximize return to the province, jobs and taxes and royalties, whatever. And yes, deal with the environmental concerns. And yes, try to ensure that some of the work in the construction world is done here. The retention of some of the intellectual, uh, intellectual property. You know, we've got We've got the people. Now, there's a, a trades shortage in many parts of the world. There's a labor shortage across the country. Uh, you know what, Dave, saying that? Let's see if we can get Darren King one day this week to talk about opportunities for the trade organizations he represents with all of these wind proposals kicked around, even though we're simply at the beginning of the conversation. But let's further it right after this break. But when we do come back, Mike King, he's the director of the Serious Incident Response Team. He and his group did a report into the allegations of sexual assault committed by, or sexual violence committed by, members of the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. Troubling report. Lots to discuss with Mike King right after this. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to Mike King. He's the director of the Serious Incident Response Team, CERT, here in this province. Uh, Mike, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for making time for us this morning, Mike. No problem. No problem. Okay, so it was, I think, a really good idea for the province to uh, create our own CERT. We've been relying on the province of Nova Scotia for this Serious Incident Response Team work. You had a look after a media flood of conversations and allegations of sexual impropriety, sexual violence, sexual assault on behalf of members of the RNC. You had a look at it. Let's focus in on the one case where you said that the police had their review. Consequently, the officer retired, but you said it should have been uh, brought forward for criminal matters. Matter. First off, what did the RNC do to investigate this one allegation? What did they do to understand some of the troubling behavior in the past of this one officer? So from the information we have, there was an internal investigation uh, commenced by the RNC. Uh, it was resolved in the way that I outlined in my report. Um, as far as we could see, again, from the information we had, um, the uh, affected person uh, was consulted with respect to uh, the matter of resolution. She, at that time, uh, was, uh, again, as the, at least as the documentation uh, tells us, she was agreeable to the resolution. 
um, and the officer subsequently retired. So that's the way, that's how that, that particular file was handled, as far as we could see. That sounds like a plea agreement. But the unfortunate reality is it's not a plea agreement because we're trying to look for a resolution without evaluating whether or not it rose to the uh, level of a criminal code investigation on charges to be pending. So when you hear that and you understand how it was handled, not only what do you think should have been done, but what do you think has to change internally at the RNC to ensure that there's no brokering of these types of retirement deals? Well, just to understand... uh Patty, that uh, our mandate doesn't include reviewing um, RNC internal procedures. Our mandate is to investigate serious into a criminal standard. So we're not looking at policy of the RNC. Uh, we're looking at uh, specific incidents that occur. So I can't speak to how the, the RNC uh, should change their policies. But what I will say is that in this particular incident, and as I said in my report, uh, I felt that the matter should have been looked at more closely. Perhaps a criminal uh, investigation should have been commenced at that time by somebody, not necessarily the, the RNC. In fact, perhaps uh, somebody outside the RNC, uh, and that matter wasn't done. The reason I included that in my report, uh, the report is meant to uh, be transparent. It's meant to explain to the public uh, the evidence we gather if we don't lay a charge, the report explains why we didn't lay a charge. And so I made that comment in the report because I felt the need to explain to the public why we were having trouble collecting evidence. So the context of my comment in that report is, is was to explain, look, we, we were challenged in collecting evidence because this matter arose some time ago and there was no criminal investigation into the incident. So we're at a disadvantage coming along two, three years later and, and having to go back and collect that uh, information, which is not as readily available as uh, as we came to find out through the investigation. So you have a mandate that's pretty black and white, but I, I guess I'm asking for an opinion here, is how do you want us to read the report? How do you want us to uh, talk about the report? What kind of questions should we be asking? What's next steps? Because now that we know what happened and we know what you think is a glaring uh, oversight to not pursue it further, what do we do with the report? Well, so hopefully, hopefully, uh, the report, the two glaring things about the report, number one, is that it was meant to explain to the to tell the public, look, these matters have not gone away. Uh, since they came up in the summer of 2021, we have been working on them. Here's what we have done. Here's why no charge has been laid. Here's why you haven't heard about these matters. Uh, but more importantly than that even, we're not giving up. So the purpose of the report was to, to explain that to the public, but also appeal to the public. Uh, we've hit a standstill in terms of uh, collecting evidence, but we're not, again, we're not willing to give up. Uh, we still believe that there may be evidence out there, and we want to appeal to the public to contact us in the event they feel they have uh, a person has relevant information. That is information respecting a sexual offense by a police officer, particularly in St. John's. But uh, uh, you know, our, our our mandate extends throughout the province. But in this particular case, we're dealing with incidents in St. John's. So we wanted, to, in tandem with the report, we wanted to appeal to the public, provide our contact information again, and ask ask anyone with relevant information to contact us because uh, you know if the, if the evidence is out there we want to find it this is another effort we are making where again i can't repeat it enough we don't want to give up on this if this uh, behavior is occurring 
Our job is to hold police accountable. We want to hold police accountable, and this is an example of, of efforts by our team to do that. You referred to disturbing pattern, and that was regarding one specific officer. And I know they investigate incidents after they've happened, but a culture inside an organization can lead to action, can lead to these types of allegations. So what, in your opinion, should we understand about the potential culture or a toxic work environment? Because, you know, it's causation. If you have that environment, then it maybe allows officers to behave because they know they might be beyond criminal code investigation. So what can you say about the culture of the organization as you look at these various allegations yeah well it's hard for me to comment on the culture of an organization that i'm not a part of and never have been a part of of the organization uh in fact you know i've spent most of my career going up against the organization in court when i was a defense lawyer so uh as to the culture uh that's a question that may be better asked to somebody other than myself um and that, you know i just don't want to give an opinion on something i don't have enough information about that would be irresponsible of me to do so i'm not trying to skirt the question patty but uh, you know i'm just not able to comment on it i would hope though i will say that uh with respect to this particular incident and the way it was resolved if the same thing w were to occur um in in the present day i would hope that it would be dealt with more thoroughly and that uh, the matter would be uh, would be forwarded to CERT, uh, so we could we could have a look at it. That's what we are here for. And I should say that with the current administration, um, we are getting good cooperation. Uh, and they, in fact, uh, the at this point, as far as I can see, the police agencies tend to err on the side of caution. So they send they send uh, files to CERT on a regular basis for our review. Some of them meet our mandate. Some of them don't. Can you give us an example? No, I can't comment on cases. Okay. Okay, so again, the mandate is understood and clear, but there are some groups out there, First Voice, and different individuals say that the serious incident response team doesn't have the teeth required to do what we hope the outcomes will be. Not only investigations after the fact, but the teeth to get the job done to their satisfaction, whatever level that may indeed be. So even just a bare reference to not enough teeth at CERT, your comment. Yeah. So we have authority under the Serious Incident Response Team Act to lay criminal charges, okay? Uh, we, we've conducted a thorough investigation of every single complaint that we've received that fits our mandates. Uh, in fact, I will say, Patty, to date, we have overseen or investigated five files that have resulted in charges or arrest of the officer. Uh, these are making their way through courts now. One of them has even been resolved by a guilty plea by the officer. We've laid firearms charges. We've laid domestic violence charges. Uh, we've made an arrest recently in a drug investigation. The reality is not every investigation leads to a charge. Uh, sometimes the evidence is just not there. That doesn't mean we don't have teeth. That's just the nature of the system. So all we can do is be as thorough as possible. I am certainly confident, based on my extensive experience, that we have done that. Uh, again, for example, uh, with respect to the file we're particular file we're talking about, we could have given up on this file and concluded the investigation. Uh, but again, we're trying. We won't give up. Uh, and that's why we, we are appealing to the public to contact us. So uh, in terms of I don't know how, how much more teeth we can have. I mean, we've, we're laying criminal charges against officers. Uh, files that come across our desk are being worked on properly. We're holding officers accountable. There's not much more we could do. Uh, we can listen to different perspectives. We can co uh, collaborate with different community groups, which I have always done. Uh, and we can build upon, you know, our success, try to improve on a constant basis. It's a continuous effort. Uh, we are 
you know, we're a relatively new new group. Um, we just became operational a little over a year ago. So building trust takes time. Um, it's something we're continuously working on. So we just have, have patience, but I think uh, we're off, certainly off to a good start, and we've, we've done everything uh, that we're meant to do. Um, and that, that's the comment I can make on that. You talk about the volume of files hitting your desk. Do you have sufficient resources to do the comprehensive investigations in a timely fashion? Yes, right now we, we are able, we've got a very efficient team. Uh, right now we have been able to, uh, to handle the workload. I will say though, again, going back to the fact that we are a, a brand new team, we're seeing an increase in, in uh, complaints, an increase in file load as the years go by. And I think that's just because people are becoming more and more aware of cert and ill. Uh, so, uh, you know, in 2020, for example, when it, <clears throat> before we were operational, we were, we were getting complaints uh, that that number essentially doubled in 2021, and 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 they're incre- we're we're on pace for a huge increase again in 2022. We appreciate the time and the work that you and your team at the uh, Serious Incident Response Team do, Mike. Thank you for this, Patty. If I could just say before I go, and I, and I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Go here. ahead. But again, to appeal to the public to contact us uh, if they have uh, any information with respect to uh, sexual offense regarding a police officer in St. John's, particularly, uh, you know, in relation to the report that we've been talking about. Our number is 709-738-7478, so that's 738-CERT, and we have a toll-free number, 1-833-738-738. 7478. So 1833738CERT. If the individual doesn't feel comfortable calling us, they can email us at certinfo at certnl.ca. And I just want to, re- want to reiterate, Patty, uh, victims, it's hard, very hard for a victim to want to become uh, involved in the justice system. That's completely understandable. And we're asking somebody to talk about and, and relive perhaps the most traumatic experience of their lives. So that's a challenge faced by all investigative agencies, not just CERT and L. So all we can do is be available and make the arrangements as accommodating as possible for somebody who wants to come forward, and we will do that. Um, if you don't want us to investigate, we won't investigate. You can still feel comfortable uh, coming forward to us. Uh, educate yourself. Uh, you know, uh, visit the Status of Women's Council. Uh, visit the plan, the journey project. Educate yourself on the process. But you can, you can always contact us, and we'll answer any questions you have. We are here to investigate. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the the, cha- the choice is yours, and uh, we'll make it as, as uh, accommodating as possible. So that's uh, that's about all we can we can do in the circumstances. Thanks again, Mike. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Patty. Take good care. Bye bye. That's Mike King. He's the director at the Serious Incident Response Team for Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's take a break. When we come back, Bernard's in the queue to talk about CRA. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Bernard. You're on the air. Yes, Patty. How are you today? Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Uh, Paddy, I'm calling today um, just to bring uh, attention to CRA uh, and the audit process that myself and my wife are going through as small business owners. And uh, I guess a little backstory on it. We got two small businesses in the metropolitan area. Uh, One of them is 15 years old and the other is five years old. And my wife works there full time. She drives her 
or uh, income from those businesses. I have a career elsewhere. But, uh, I mean, I don't have to tell your listeners or you that uh, just as individuals, we've gone through probably the most stressful, trying time uh, in recent human history with the COVID. And not to mention the stresses that that has placed on the small businesses that we run. So in 2021, CRA decided to audit our two businesses. Now, we those businesses survived uh, COVID, and my wife worked diligently, uh, and she had many, many uh, stressful nights and tearful nights uh, trying to keep her staff. She has low t- turnover, and she takes uh, the fact that uh, she didn't have to lay any of her staff off during COVID, uh, you know, as a feather in her hat in trying to keep those people employed. And, and they're more than just staff, they're, they're family to her. So CRA decided to audit her in 2021, and it was going to cover 2019, 18, and 17. So <clears throat> when the auditor called her to indicate, to let her know that she was going to be audited, and I was present for this phone call. She asked what was the reason for the audit uh, and if it was something that she could avoid in the future. And the auditor indicated to her that her one of her quarterly submissions and her HST was low in comparison to her revenue. And within five minutes, my wife was able to tell him that it was low because she had taken advantage of the $40,000 Serb uh, allowance, and that that was deposited into the daily revenue account, but no HST was actually collected on it. So when she did her quarterly submission, there was a, a difference. That made perfect sense, and he admitted that 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 made sense. But because the audit process had started, he couldn't stop it. Now we found that to be ridiculous. I mean, we we're not completely out of COVID yet, and our businesses are by no means back on the level. But yet, he forged through and made her go through the entire year of developing reports, of getting documents, of searching up uh, paperwork. And I don't have to tell you, as a small business, we don't have an accountant at the end of the hall with a desk that we can just go in and lay stuff on. She's very intimate in the business and the bookkeeping, but when it comes to audits, she has to rely on our accounting company. And, of course, they don't do things for free. We don't expect them to. So that audit in 2021, when we were financially just hanging on, nearly sank the company. And she got through it, uh, and a lot of the stuff that was asked of her and the documents that she had to uh, prepare, in in our mind and the accountant's mind, was ridiculous. Uh, They would call her at Friday evening at 7.30 and look for documents to be prepared to have for him to, to submit to him on Monday. Uh, you know, she's still running the businesses. We still have a life. We still have, you know, children and grandchildren. and You know, we still have all the goings on. Uh, and yet, CRA was absolutely non-compassionate in their timing of trying to, and I, and I realize CRA, Patty, has a role. I mean, I, you know, we work with them on the daily as business owners. But to initiate a audit at in this time, right when we were, were not even out of the COVID business wise, and when he had his answer in five minutes, why the red flag 
uh, CRA received, and yet he just went ahead with it. And, you know, that put an enormous amount of stress on her and on us as business owners. And then the process gets worse. In 2022, she got notified that she would be audited again. Now, the outcome of the first audit was a $4,000 penalty from the two companies over four years. And our accountant didn't agree with it, but it was a matter of numbers. You can you can keep this process going and pay 10000 for the accounting company to try to fight it or just pay the 4000 and move on, and that's what we did. And in 2022, early 2022, she was indicated she was being audited again, going back over 2019, 18, and 17. And initially, my wife... You know, right out the gate said, well, I, I was just audited. Like, can't you go back over those years with the guy I just went through? And yeah, he wouldn't hear it. And and these auditors, you know, and I've been on the phone, you know, on the speaker phone with my wife as she's dealt with some of them. You know, it's bordering on bullying, harassment. They're degrading and they're condescending towards my wife. And I've witnessed it. And she's ended those phone calls many times in tears. And I'll just give you one example, which is absolutely ridiculous. And this most current auditor uh, sent my wife, um, you know, our accounting company would call a wild goose chase, to develop all this paperwork to have submitted to CRA. And the, the accountant told my wife, don't do it. Don't even bother doing that because, you know, this is ridiculous. So he set up a phone call meeting between my wife her accountant, and this auditor. And when the accountant started to bring to the auditor's attention how ridiculous it was to ask this lady to do this, his answer was, well, I was testing her. And instantly, my wife broke down in the accounting office and started crying. Like, she couldn't contain herself for five minutes. And I found that that comment alone, I wish we had recorded, like that individual should lose his job for that. Now, this is the second audit that we're going through, and CRA's timing is, you know, uh, we survived COVID, we kept our staff, we are barely hanging on, and in the search of whatever they're looking for, and if we owe tax money, we owe tax money. Mm -hmm. But do you really need to do it back-to-back, right on the heels of the most trying time businesses and individuals have gone through to get it? It's just absolutely ridiculous what we're having to go through what i would hope unfortunately i've got to get to the news but they needn't be heavy-handed with that kind of stuff it's not a stress test it's a mathematical uh, investigation secondly you can only hope that the big operations in this country who took advantage of whether it be the canadian wage subsidy the emergency wage subsidy and use it for creating dividends or expanding their dividends or recording surpluses you can only hope cra deals with them as forcefully as they dealt with you yeah, and I highly doubt that. I highly of course, doubt, of course, it's not know, individual to oil companies and Air Canada and all these companies who are, you know, multi-billion-dollar organizations mm-hmm. would be treated in the same way. And just one little last point, Patty. This individual, this account, this auditor, as of late, my wife set up a meeting, a face-to-face meeting with this auditor, and she had spent weeks preparing four bankers' boxes worth of documents that he was looking for. He didn't show up at the meeting. He, Leanne, my wife's name is Leanne, she tried to contact him all the following week. He wouldn't return the emails, wouldn't return the calls. And then the following week, 
when she contacted him, his response to her was, well, I had a personal engagement I had forgotten about. And, and my wife, like, spends nights preparing the stuff for these individuals, and it's as if it's nothing. Uh, and, right. and I got 10 more examples of that kind of conduct. And they're essentially uh, going to push our two small businesses into the ground uh, at a time that I think is completely unnecessary. They could have waited. Like, we're only okay. small businesses, so the most we can own is pennies. And, you know, they're going to make sure that, you know, we don't survive CRA, let alone COVID. Well, let's hope you survive both. I appreciate the time. I wish I didn't have to leave it at that for this morning, but I'm over time. But I wish you and, the, and your wife the best of luck with this. I appreciate it. I just hope your listeners, maybe somebody else out just going through the same, same thing. And someone in CRA may, you know, get their head out of their ass. That's all I'm asking. Thanks, Bernard. Take care. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Okay, time for the news. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Don Coombs. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing absolutely perfect. Patty, I'd like to, uh, uh, we've got a little thing on the go in CBM, but first of all, I'd like to congratulate Alec Newhook and the uh, Newhook and Mercer families uh, for sharing the, the Stanley Cup with our province. Certainly a, a great thing, a great young man, and many cups to come, I hope. Absolutely. And like I mentioned off the top, I've uh, met and spoke with Dawson Mercer at one of the parties, and we can only hope that he gets his hand on the cup and we can take it out to his neck of the woods in Bay Roberts and do it all over again. And it, uh, it never gets old. Absolutely. Patty, I'm with a group out around uh, the Conception Minority area that got, uh, we got together and we felt there was a need within our communities to be more inclusive. And we shared a vested uh, interest and desire to see the region involved and to be more inclusive in CBN. So we did start a, a group and uh, we wanted to kick off our inclusive CBN group with something special. And speaking about athletes, what we did, we reached out to Liam Hickey and uh, what, a, what, what another fine gentleman, what another fine athlete. You know, he's a two-sport Paralympic athlete and silver medalist, and he's agreed to come out to Danny Cleary Harbour Grace Community Centre tomorrow from 1 to 3. We're going to kick off inclusive CBN. He's coming out with his, uh, some of his teammates, Patty, that you would probably know, and uh, thanks to Easter Seals, we've got some sleds. Uh, they're going to put on a little exhibition game. We're going to have a little celebrity game, and we're also uh, asking our minor hockey associations, our figure skating, other organizations, the guides, the Special Olympians, anybody to come out and try sledge hockey as we kick off inclusive uh, CBN uh, we realize that uh, our tagline says all people all ages all abilities and it's a regional partnership Patty between the municipalities and CBN and all we want to do is promote accessibility and inclusivity in in the whole area and Liam Hickey uh, no better person to help us kick it off so that's tomorrow at one o'clock Patty and we're inviting everybody to come along meet Liam and see what we can do in CBN it doesn't have to be a million dollar fixes it can be simple things and we look at it as people abilities never disabilities and as we get older in our, our lives uh, you know our our abilities become less and less so we're just going to reach out and have Liam come out to the Danny Cleary Harbour Grace Community Center tomorrow at one o'clock is something we're so proud of you got the ice down 
you know, ice is on. We put the ice wow. on back a month ago, and it's being blocked uh, uh, with hockey schools, with rec hockey getting back. And, uh, you know, it's being unreal. I, I, I suppose it's okay. Bo Bennett was up at his group, and he's the uncle of Dawson Mercer. And he had uh, Dawson and Raleigh on the ice every day. The Delaney boys that you know uh, had their yep. camps going. It's been flat out all summer up there, and so nice to see. Terrific. Yeah, we're not putting our ice down, I think, till maybe tomorrow. Uh, okay, so that's great. And, look, you cannot do any better than getting Liam Hickey in the fold. Beyond being a tremendous athlete, one of the best the province has ever produced, the ambassadorship that he displays, the way he interacts with whether it be the fans or the public or others getting involved in these inclusive programs is second to none. He's, he's a real gem, that boy. Patty, we've reached out to him, and without hesitation, yes. And here's here's what we can do. And he reached out to his partners and his teammates, and they're all coming. And as you said, what a fine gentleman. There was no hesitation. It was yes. And it's about, uh, you know, we doing something as a group in CBN for inclusive CBN. And the more we get out tomorrow, and municipal leaders come out. Get on the sled. Try it. Let's go. And if you're coming to try it, bring a helmet and a pair of gloves. 100%. And if uh, anyone who's ever been in a sled can tell you, they make it look easy on TV. Liam makes it look easy, but it is not. It's actually pretty difficult to manage that sled, but it's a laugh all the same. Yeah, it, it's good, and it's it, it's it's part of our life now, and, uh, you know, just him reaching out, and I'm going to try it tomorrow, so I can confirm with you after tomorrow what it's going to be like, and I would say it's very difficult. Yeah. He's one of the best in the world. 100%. Uh, I played in one for uh, Easter Seals at an intermission back at a Leafs game or a Caps game there years ago, and I'll never forget it. So I got in the sled. I had no helmet on. I was the Ron Duguay of sled hockey that day, <laughs> uh, and Liam was a really young guy, and the fella from, uh, I think the Sled Dogs, the name of the team, said, keep yeah. your eye on this kid it was Liam Hickey and now look at him <laughs> amazing stuff uh, Dom, how do you build on this because starting a program is excellent and hopefully someone like Liam can bring more people into the fold but what's the plan to build on it to make it more than a one-off to create a community attitude and policies and programs that can make sure that this is indoors a long time and brings more and more people in well what we've done we, we selected a group and uh, I say like we got Gordon Stone he's chair of the CBN Joint Councils he he's presenting this to joint councils each and every month. We got Walter Yetman uh, up in Bay Roberts, uh, his worship, and they got one of the playgrounds up there. They're second and under province for inclusivity. So we've got to build on it. We've taken this on and Peggy Tuttle, Dr. Peggy Tuttle is our, is our chair, and we've taken it on, and we're going we're gonna to see that this succeeds because it affects each and every one of us. And as I said, it's, it's abilities, it's all ages, all people, all abilities, and that's what we got to let the people know. And if we can get the smaller communities involved, it doesn't have to be a big thing and maybe it's getting up to a boardwalk that we make it inclusive maybe it's just walking somewhere maybe it's we're getting the malls involved we discussed a lot of things but we just want to see it happen and this is the start it's the kickoff and we couldn't have a better person come to our kickoff than liam hickey tomorrow at one o'clock congratulations and good luck with it don Thanks, Patty. Keep you posted. All the best. Have a great one. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. It's Don Coombs. That's good play, good program, good plan, good people. All right, let's uh, get on track with the breaks so when we come back. Curiously, interestingly enough, and fittingly enough, Brendan's in the queue to talk about accessibility issues. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Brendan. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you? Couldn't be better, sir. How about you? Well, I'm not doing too bad. Great. Uh, I spoke with you about... Oh, it's a couple of months ago, regarding an electric bed and a wheelchair for Beverly. Because I'm a I'm an activist for people with disabilities, amongst other items, and we were able to come up with the uh, electric bed and the wheelchair. Uh, 
Is that the one where we got the House of Movers brought it out and all that stuff? That's right. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. that is correct. And, and, And we certainly thank you for that. However, that being said, Beverly now needs a customized wheelchair. Now, the government has said, yes, we will, you know, we'll build a wheelchair. However, before we build it, you must find a agency or company to to widen your front door, uh, install a deck and and a runway for her wheelchair. So I can't afford it, sir. I'm a I'm a senior. I'm not rich, and neither can Beverly. So I just said to Beverly, I, I talked it over with her, and I said. Let's let's give Patty a call and see if, if if Patty can open up a door here or there to to have a company or an agency uh, do this at the goodness of their heart. Uh, let's see what we can do. So, do we have any idea about an associated cost, materials, and labor? Has anyone given even a bare bones idea what we're looking at? No, sir, they haven't. Okay. I haven't. Well, I haven't really got deeply into it at at the present moment. Okay. So it's widening a door, putting in a ramp uh, for the to accommodate the wheelchair. The government will pay for the construction of this customized wheelchair. We're in Cornerbrook, right, uh, Brendan? Yes. Cornerbrook. Okay. So what I can do is I know a couple of people in the area, but right now here on the open airwaves, if someone would like to participate in, whether you be uh, providing materials and or you know a contractor, if we can put together a collection of folks to do this work, what I can do in return is to make sure that their community spirit efforts are recognized on this program. We might be able to uh, drum up a few bucks through a bit of fundraising that I can take on on the side, see what we can pull off here. So what are we looking for, like a timeline here? When do you think the wheelchair will be done? How soon do we need to try, attempt to get somebody to help you out? Well, they're not going to start to build the wheelchair. Until this is done. Okay. Um, yeah, until the, the deck and the runway and the doorway has, has been completed. Okay, so let me let me do this. We'll keep your number out of it for now. But if you're on the West Coast, uh, in and around Cornerbrook, and if you could just go by and give us an idea of what we're looking at here. So for widening of the door, the installation of a ramp, because it's hard for me to picture with my mind's eye whether it has right. to be, uh, you know, two different uh, runs on the ramp or the door situated somewhere where they can do a one ramp at the appropriate safe angle. So if someone can go out there and have a look and give me an idea of what we're looking at, we can start with that. Very well, sir. And and if if there is a, a a person or a business that would like to contact myself, uh, they could certainly call your show and certainly give them my number. Yep. Uh, because it would be, you know, it would be professional for them to come out and take a look at it to know what the uh, what the cost is and you know what the material is going to be exactly we need to have a start with that so that we can you know it's always important to begin in the right place and that sounds like the right place so yeah. uh, if anyone out there even if you privately want to just connect with me we can start the ball rolling if we can get it going let's just put that call out there because there's obviously going to be plenty of contractors and the provision of materials there's people working in that retail business on the west coast obviously so if they can contact me i'll see what i can do and see if how far down the road we can get going here. How about that? Okay. Now, there's one other thing, sir. Okay. Uh, there is a wheelchair now available, okay, because the wheelchair that Beverly got doesn't, like, doesn't meet her needs. 
So, so if someone is looking for a wheelchair, uh, there's one sitting over at Beverly's that they are certainly welcome to, uh, to have. Okay, so we can try to uh, deal with all of those issues at the same time just to make sure that Beverly has what she needs and then whoever might be able to utilize her chair gets it and we'll see what we can do on that front too. Leave it with me, Brendan, see what I can do. Just give me a sec. If I may, sir, there's major construction going on right in front of Beverly's, okay? I'm talking major. But I want to send out a special thank you to the city of Cornerbrook to Rock Construction out of St. John's and to Newfoundland Power who have shut down the power over there today and they called me at 8 o'clock this morning and had a generator and everything over there uh, hooked up to her panel box to make sure that her electric chair, her oxygen and everything is working for her. And so Beverly would like just to say thank you very much and it's nice to know that there are people who respect people with disabilities good stuff brandon uh, uh, do you have a pen and paper handy i certainly do sir okay so there's a program uh from newfoundland labrador housing i don't know how applicable all this might be but it's home modification program that might be some assistance here while we look for whatever else we need toll-free number in cornerbrook is 1-800-563 uh-huh. Four four zero eight. Yeah, and I, I I know some people at Newfoundland Labrador Housing. So see what that gets you, and then get back to me. But we'll still look for someone to come over and give us an idea of what we're looking at. Very well, sir. I thank you, and uh, you have a pleasant day. And thank you very much. My pleasure, Brendan. Take good care. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. So that's helpful. Uh, actually, Paul Lane sent that email to me. I don't know how Dave got it, but Dave whispered in my ear the same time I saw the email. So that's appreciated. Let's go to line number two. Bill, you're on the air. Hey, uh, good morning, Petty. How are you this morning? Top shelf today. How you doing, Bill? Petty, first of all, uh, I'll follow up on that call there. If Beverly happens to be a veteran or a family member of a veteran, okay, they could also look into the Royal Canadian Legion because we have a poppy trust fund that is for veterans and their families when in time of need. Well, I'm not sure of the, her status on that front. No, but, but. I, just, I, just, I just want to relay it just in case. Yep. And, Petty, my reason my call today, and, Petty, thank you very much for taking my call. Uh, the Legion on Black Mars Road, we're going to have a flipper dinner on September the 12th. Eat in at 4 to 5.30, take out at uh, five, 6 o'clock. Uh, yeah, wait, now, I'm sorry, get that reversed. Take out 4 to 5.30. Evening starting at 6 o'clock. On Monday, September the 12th, tickets are $25. If you don't like flipper, you can have certainly have roast beef. Always sounds good, and it seems to go well when we have a chat about it. Uh, Rand, uh, Patty, as soon as I call you, I have to tell the girls up in the office before I call you because the phones light up like a Christmas tree when I get down the line about it. That's what I like to hear. So give the folks the details one more time. The the takeout right. time begins at 4, runs to 5. The eat-in is at 6 o'clock. And we're talking about Branch 1 on Black Marsh Road. How much? $25. Mm-hmm. And tickets are available at 579-8281. Or you can buy them at the bar from 12 noon to 12 uh, midnight daily. 
terrific. 12 noon to 12 midnight, you can buy them at the club, at the bar, or you can phone 579-8281. Let's hope we sell her out. Uh, we only have a limited amount of tickets because, of, as you know, Flippers to Spring were hard to get. Absolutely, they were, 100%. Well, uh, Patty, how is your summer going? So far, so good. Thanks for asking, Bill. It's been a busy summer, I have to say that, but uh, the weather's been beautiful, had some fun stuff going on. How about yours? Uh, Patty, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't uh, get out much, but I thoroughly enjoyed sitting on the patio and enjoying the sunshine and it reminded me of an old time summer <laughs> well that's a happy memory to bring the bear and yes this weather's been nice and there's been lots of stuff going on so overall it's been a great summer and of course my wife is a teacher so we're winding down that uh, component of well, our summer but soon be time and now, Patty, the only thing I do remember is when I was young and enjoyed those summer days, I was too young to drink beer. <laughs> you haven't got that problem anymore. That problem was well solved. <laughs> I understand entirely. <laughs> Patty, thank you very much, for, and thank you to VLC and for everything you do for Branch Forum to help us out, because each one of those fine calls mean a lot to us. And it's helping us keep the doors open at the branch. Happy to do it, Bill. I appreciate your time this morning. Good luck with it. Thank you, and I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All the best. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Time for a break. When we come back, Jerry's in the queue to talk about the police. On what level? We'll find out. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number four, Jerry, you're on the air. Yes, I, I, oh, is he getting on, Petty? Okay, Jerry, you? Yeah, I'm very good. I, well, I'm not good, but I'm very good. Hey, boy. We'll put it that way. Uh, so, no, what I want to speak on, I want to speak on the RCMP and, uh, and uh, the RNC, right? Because, see, they can do what they like, hey. They can shoot you, come in yours and shoot you, or whatever, and uh, nothing to it. And there's no going to take them to court, because if you do, you'll end up uh, probably uh, in jail yourself. Yeah, well, individuals don't take law enforcement to court. There's investigations and charges, and then people go to court if there's a reason to go to court, right? Yeah, but that's the reason to go to court. Yes, I understand that. But what I'm saying, they can do what they like. They can shoot you on the road or shoot you if you if you if you if you're involved or anything, or they think you're involved and kill, kill the man or the woman or and what? that's how What's this based on, Jerry? What what have you seen like anything like that? Huh? What are we talking about here? So you've seen well, anything like this, or? Like this, now, if you, you can cut on the road there, and if you can blame for something, well, they can shoot you, and, and that's how I'll do it. No. No, oh, yes, oh, yes. Uh, I, I, I've heard talk of it before, because it's all on the news and everything like that. Eh? And, and uh, that's not all of it, though, because first of all, no, first first thing is, uh, okay, so they do on the news is talk about people drinking and impaired drivers. Now, there's nothing about the, the dope and all that kind of stuff. Because uh, if you, if you, if you, if the RCMP stops you there and if you load it with, with dope and everything else, well, more or less you'll get away with it because true throttling. And no, it's uh, it's illegal. It doesn't. No, 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 Jerry. No, 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 no. That's not how anything works. It's oh, still yeah, it, it it's mean, illegal to be behind the wheel under the influence of dope. Get on like this, because I know. See, I, I no, know. No, you don't. It's illegal. But it's it's part of the law. A law, Larry. A law for, for the government. That's what that's what the law is for. 
So anyway, that, that's, that's, that's the way it goes. It's just exactly the way I said it. Well, there was a guy charged here in town last week for being... Un- okay, here we go. Well, you are you are, you are, are probably a, a liberal yourself. I'm a liberal because of what? I'm putting it the right way, so... What? Good, good, uh, good be talking to you, Petty, and I'll talk to you later on. Good enough. All the best, Jerry. There was someone charged under the influence of uh, cannabis here just last week. And uh, anyway, <laughs> I don't know how that speaks to anyone's political allegiances, but yep. Line number two, caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Daddy. Good morning to you. How are you? Uh, pretty good. <laughs> how about you? I'm uh, calling with regards to uh, an incident that uh, had happened uh, on Sunday evening here in the city. Uh, a young male uh, was uh, discovered outside of a local business. Uh, according to another gentleman that was uh, at the scene uh, when I arrived, whoops, uh, he had uh, said how the um, two police cruisers and the paramedics were on the scene and had left the young man outside that uh, business. And to me, that's that's heartless. You, you don't even do that to a dog, you know? Okay, so they responded to find what? Uh, this young male was uh, unconscious. Uh he uh he was face down in the in the dirt uh he he wasn't responsive to me i could tell that he was breathing uh but uh, other than that i'm just wondering you know your job as an rnc officer is to serve and protect this city no matter your upbringing no matter what you look like uh I just think that's pretty sad and heartless you know, for anyone to do that to another uh, human being. Wouldn't the appropriate call for someone un- unresponsive, face down in the dirt, not be to the police, but to be to 911 get a paramedic? Uh, yes, and they were also there, uh, Patty. And what did they do? They left them. And to me, that's not good enough. Uh, that's your job, you know. Where was this? Like, this was Sunday evening, uh, Teddy. Where? Uh, uh, St. John's, Mount Pearl, Cornerbrook, Gander. Oh, I'm sorry, St. John's. St. John's, okay. Yes, yeah, Center City, more or less. Okay. And uh, to know that you got two, two different organizations, paramedics and the RNC, you know. Uh, the RNC is supposed to wear that badge with pride. Most don't deserve to wear that badge. And I can say that from my own experience. So where are you taking this uh, after this show? So is this lodge a formal complaint with whether it be, I guess in this case, Eastern Health or with the RNC that what you saw was first responders, one wearing a police uniform, one wearing a paramedics uniform or however many there were. They saw what was going on. The young fellow was unresponsive. They, I don't know, shook him or whatever they did. Then they hopped back in their rigs and left. Yes, sir. If that's what you're, that's what you're telling me what happened. Are you going to do anything with this information? 
Yes, because you know what, Patty? What? Uh, in, in my world where I was born and raised, you don't treat another human being like that. No, of course not. That, to me, just shows that, for one, you're heartless. Yeah, you have no empathy for nobody. Uh, I don't care what way you were, uh, what condition you're in. The, the poor young fella had actually had an accident in, in on himself because he was unconscious. Now, who knows? He could have had a seizure. But you're a paramedic. You're trained to deal with those situations, just like the RNC. I mean, first off, I don't understand a paramedic in particular leaving someone who was obviously in poor physical state just laying there. I don't know, and I wasn't there. But if I was you and I saw it, so are you saying that this person was ignored or left alone because the they knew who he was or they he's a so-called career criminal or because he's poor? Or, like, why do you think it happened the way you say it happened? All of the above, I'd say, Patty. Okay. To be honest. All right. Yeah. And to me, that's not good enough. See, you're 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 supposed to be there to help the citizens, not to ignore them. I mean, uh, I can remember another incident that uh, I mean, this young fellow was passed out on on the sidewalk, and I stopped, and for the amount of cars that drove by. And didn't even stop to ask, hey, like, do you need any help? Uh, I actually thought it was garbage bags on the sidewalk. I stopped and I stayed with this young man. Uh, the poor young fella, yeah, he, he did just get off the DRL bus. He was unconscious on the sidewalk. And I actually stayed with him. I called the paramedics. And, you know... That's what that's what you do as a human being for another human being. Well, that's their job, and we're not even it's not even supposed to be about morality or socioeconomics. It's just hard to believe that a paramedic would not do his or her job upon responding to someone who's unresponsive, lying, whether it be the dirt or the grass or the concrete or a pile. Is that that would be the case? Like, and again, I wasn't there. I'm not going to tell you what you did or did not see, but it just sounds outrageous that they wouldn't respond so if i was you with your first-hand experience and your first-hand account i would call the appropriate authorities first off i call eastern health and speak with them about what you saw hear from them file or uh, file a formal complaint if you see fit but that's what i would do if i was in your position and i don't know what happened but uh, i mean the paramedics i know that I mean they take their job so seriously that it has nothing to do with who you are, man or woman, color your skin, whatever re- religious convictions you have. If you're poor or rich, they respond upon their call and they discharge their duties because they're determined professionals. So if you think someone has not done what they've been trained and paid to do, you should follow up with Eastern Health. That's what I would do. Well, I've tried contacting Eastern Health. Uh, that's like uh, trying to get through to uh, the Pope. Um, I do. Uh, I did fi- phone the uh, Public Complaints Commission. Uh, I am filing a report uh, because, see, Pat, just like just like when you're a nurse, see, you could be a nurse, but it don't mean you have the heart to do your job. And 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 as accounts in my life have uh, been experienced, yeah, you you don't have the bedside manner to be that nurse because that's not your calling. Just like paramedics, you have your good ones, you have your bad ones. Just like the RNC, you have your good good ones, you have your bad ones. Some don't deserve to wear that badge. 
plain and simple. Here's what I would do. So the formal place to lodge your complaint with Eastern Health, you can do it two ways. You can call them. You can email them. Emailing is always a pretty good idea because then you'd have a record of their reply and acknowledgement of re- receipt. So the number is pretty easy. One, it's 777 for the telephone mm. number. But it's client.relations at easternhealth.ca is what I would also choose. I'd probably do both, but I'd start with the email. Well, see, I'm all, I was also thinking, Patty, that well, this uh, business uh, do have cameras outside. So, and along with this gentleman, see, there's two witnesses and there's the cameras. So, all you have to do is go to that business, look at the cameras for Sunday evening between 4 to 5, see, and then that's where you'll see the evidence of the paramedics. Okay. Harvesting the evidence is important, but first you've got to lodge your formal complaint with Eastern Health. So I'd start there, and then you take next steps with doorbell cams and business CCTV cameras or what have you. So 777-6500, or the email is, I'd also use it as client.relations at easternhealth.ca. And let me know how you make out. Okay, Patty, I thank you for your time this my, morning. My pleasure. Good luck. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, very quickly, a uh, lost dog that we gave some attention to, Nala, uh, went missing Sunday evening from Mars, found safe and sound Marysville this morning. Good news. A little bit of good news doesn't hurt. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking green hydrogen. Of course we are. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Line number one, Dennis O'Keefe, you're on the air. How are you, Patty? Okay, today, you? Good. Good. Yeah, good. Well rested, ready to go. Love it. Yeah. Teddy, um, you know my my history well enough by now, um, how positive I am when it comes to economic growth in Newfoundland, Labrador, and the role that energy has to play in that future. And it is a very can be a very very good future if it's well planned and well carried out. Now you know the old adage that uh, to plan your future you need to know your past. So if we look at Newfoundland Labrador since 1949 and look at the disasters that we've had from chocolate factories to uh, rubber production to cucumbers uh, to come by chance and right up to the present day we've had a lot of boondoggles with the exception probably of Hibernia which has uh, been a wonderful could have been better but it has been very very good for Newfoundland Labrador so we look at the project that's being planned for the Stephenville area and as I understand it, the plan is to use uh, turbine energy to produce hydrogen, to produce ammonia, which will be sold to Germany, mm-hmm. which is great. And I think it has a good future if it's going to be well planned and well executed. And therein, right now, I, I don't see that happening. It could be. Behind the scenes, I don't know, but uh, we need just one or two things that I'd like to emphasize that we need to do, and then you can comment on them. Uh, One is we need to really know who's going to do this environmental assessment and how it's going to be done. Right now, my understanding is it's going to be done in phases rather than 
as one entity. No, that and was I the case at the onset. It was yeah. one third of the project received the first assessment. Now, my understanding is the government sent them back to do the entire assessment on the completion of the project at 164, the ammonia hydrogen plant, but they can't possibly evaluate the potential, says Mr. Risley, to triple it in size. So I guess we can only go with the proposal as it sits and stands today. Yeah, and we're, doing, we're, we're approving something that we haven't yet done the environmental assessment on, and we don't know who's doing this environmental assessment. I don't know anyhow, and I really don't know the process, and we, we need to be more public uh, on that. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Is it government doing the assessment, or is it an independent agency, and uh, how is it going to be carried out? And, and, you know, we need to have an economic impact assessment done on, also on the plan for revenues for Newfoundland Labrador, as well as the economic impact for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. And if we have these plans and they're well executed, this can be a success. If we don't, and I'm not going to comment on some of the people behind the scenes on this so far, but if, if we don't have a plan that's well executed for Newfoundland and Labrador and Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, then we can't afford another boondoggle. Let's talk about affordability, because I think that's where you were going when you talked about the various projects, whether it be boot factories, chocolate factories, come by chance, Hibernia, mining operations, what have you. We know you how it. those things work. The only difference at this moment in time, and this question was asked directly of Minister Parsons on this program, about provincial monies going into this project. He right. said no at this point. We do know, based on what I've read with federal government initiatives, there's pots of money available for and because my money's provincial and my money's federal. The big issue that makes this possibly different is that I don't know how much skin we're going to have in the game, unlike those other projects you talk about. When they went bad and went south and went sideways, we all joined it. This one here, the viability of it, as long as we lease the land and keep my money out of it as much as possible, the viability is up to Mr. Risley and his customers on the other side of the pond. The rest of it doesn't really concern me a whole, whole lot unless I'm in. Now, the environmental assessment is a good question, which I've been asking repeatedly. The amount of water is a good question, which we can't get an answer to. There's some numbers floating around. But I don't think we're going to be as in as we were in the other projects you mentioned. Or at least, you know what, I hope we're not. Well, the thing there, Petty, and again, go back in history and look at what happens. When a project is started, it gets one-third or 25% of the way through. All of a sudden, there's an approach to government, i.e. to come by chance refinery. Well, by look, you got to help us out or we got to close it down. Uh, give us a loan and we'll pay it back and it never gets paid back and on and on it goes. So, you know, we, we can't go down that road again and we, we, we've had these I call it economic sars come to Newfoundland Labrador before from people like Val Menace and Alan Lavardi and, and others and as regards to show yesterday in Steveville that was pale in comparison to what Joey Smallwood did when he sailed was it the Queen Mary or the Queen E into Presentia Bay to celebrate the terrific refinery that's going to be down in Combachance we can't be going down that road anymore we can't afford it so this one, if it's good, it can be great. If it's not, and it's not executed well and planned well with foresight economically and environmentally, then my fear is we could have another boondoggle on our hands. We don't have to. It can, it can be a great success depending on the planning and the execution. 
Yeah, well, I, you know, I think we're all in very similar position here with the hypotheticals because that's the problem, isn't it? You know, yep. signing a joint declaration of intent or a memorandum of understanding without any more detail. Like, I mean, they can talk about the number of jobs in the media release, and if those jobs are all here and they're all well-paying and they're on their own with their own viability and sustainability on their own dime, then we're not taking a major risk beyond water and land. Because the wind is the wind is the wind. It's going to blow regardless if there's a turbine in the way or not. So if we get those two things right, which we all stand to either benefit or suffer, then the business model, if my money is not in on it, that's up to Risley. That's up to his customers. And if it fails on that front, that's why I think the lease of the Crown Land versus purchase is an important facet here. Yep. Because if yep. all of a sudden, the swath of land that World Energy GH2, and if they take down the turbines and use it for something else because now they own it because they bought it, that's a different kettle of fish than you have to renew your lease every five ten years whatever the case may be so some protection there and understand more about the water if it, he's pulling up his own money i wish him well but i'm not going to lose any sleep over it yeah and and it, it has to be within that environmental plan there has to be be a plan for what happens after uh you know we we've done, gone down that history also of having to clean up projects uh, that finished and the environmental mess that was left behind uh, became a problem for the problem for the province and an expense uh, for the province. We have sure. to avoid that also. But Doc, aren't you also a, a supporter of equity stake in oil? Because that comes with pretty heavy remediation. I, I am, and and if Newfoundland Labrador had taken an equity stake in Hibernia financially, we would be much better off than we are today. Because yes, Ottawa yes. has made billions on that on that stake in Hibernia, and we could have bought it ourselves in 1989, except the Premier didn't want it. Uh, we could have bought it for a few hundred million dollars at that time. Really? Is it as yeah. fundamental as that? Didn't, wasn't the federal government's involvement the catalyst to get it going, period? Yes, but when it got into trouble and the two oil companies withdrew and they needed a partner to uh, to take up the equity stake and the Newfoundland government wasn't interested in it, nobody else was interested in it, and thanks be to God for John Crosby yeah. and and his influence with the federal government at the time and, and got that... Uh, uh, the Ottawa to take that equity stake, the project went ahead. It could have been ours. Maybe, but obviously the equity stake in the first ever project, knowing what we know now, was vastly different than the equity stake, say, with Equinor now potentially in the operation if they get it going out in the Flemish Pass because there's a lot of uh, history and a lot of yep. understanding that has happened since Hibernia first pumped any oil. So I think they're different things. My question was about remediation costs and equity stake versus you know, whether or not it's a good idea or a bad idea because well, it's... Yeah. It, it's it's a good idea to get in. An equity stake is, is, to some degree, a gamble, right? And equity stakes in anything can be good or can be bad, and it depends upon the research you do and um, the project that you're going to buy an equity stake in. I mean, the one in Hibernia worked out, worked out really well for Ottawa. Yeah, again, pretty early on in the game. This, you know, equity stakes, for instance, in Hebron, it all depends on the price of a barrel of oil. Yes, 
right. I mean, and right. at this moment in time, you know, I've seen the mathematical work done by a couple of uh, professors at Memorial University. Unless that average is in and around or over 100 bucks, the equity stake is going to be a long time coming in in dribs and drabs and drips and might not be what we all thought it was when we ponied up. I think it was $117 million cash on the barrel head and then ongoing deferral of royalties and all that stuff. There, yep. It's a tricky piece of business. i got to get to the news, Doc. Appreciate the yep. time this morning. Thanks, Patty. You too. Take care. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Break time for the newscast. When we come back, the topic is up to you. Do not go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Rob, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you today? Doing okay. You? Good. Not too bad. Not too bad. I just uh, I just want to touch base with you. Uh, I, I, I call in often, but uh, with the um, fishery and everything like that, like I go down, I'm in CBS, and I go down and I sit there and I watch the, the fishermen going off and stuff like this. And I would say is probably close to 98% of them, nobody ever wears a life jacket. And I seen one fellow drop off there on Sunday morning, and he fell off the boat just right by the wharf, which was okay. They got him in okay and everything like that. But, like, there, there is nothing, like, aren't, and I know every, it's like everything, it's like the place. There's not enough people to patrol everywhere. But th- these people are out in, out in the water, no life preservers, no nothing. Well, it's curious that you mentioned it in regards to the fishery because the life jacket conversation throughout wherever you are, however you are, whatever kind of boat you're getting in, life jackets are not mandatory to be worn. Now, even in my boat, I have to have a life jacket available to everyone who's on the boat, but they don't have to wear them, which is sort of a strange thing that the uh, transportation board allows folks to make up their own mind on safety. So you have to have one, but you don't have to wear it. And for the fish harvesters, you know, a life jacket is one thing, but it's those cold water immersion suits that are the lifesavers, or they're certainly all you have between you and the merciless North Atlantic. So there's a lot of things regarding fishing safety, which is curious. Add in the EPIRBs, the, uh, what does the uh, acronym stand for? Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacon. You know, things like that, (laughs) mandating all those things on vessels is in everyone's best interest if we're talking about safety. Yeah, but but what I don't understand is like, like, you know, when you're on the water, like, you don't know what's going to happen. You Anything can happen at any time. And, like, if you don't have any life, you know, like I said, life jacket or whatever like that, um, you're you're going to, especially in North Atlantic, you're not going to last long out there. No, you're not. And you're not going to last long with a life jacket and a life jacket alone. That's why those immersion suits, because things can happen quickly. If you fall in with nothing on, you've got yourself in a real predicament. And if you know that you're taking on water or there's a fire or whatever the case may be, then you may indeed have time to put on the immersion suits. But fishing safety, we know it's one of the most dangerous jobs on the face of the earth. And attention to safety has sometimes been left behind. I mean, we think of the poor lads up in Mary's Harbor who we lost. And then the uh, one of the fathers, 
Labradors is involved with the Labrador Shrimp Company, and you automatically put all these EPIRBs on all of the vessels. It comes with a cost, but every second counts. If we know you're lost, being able to find you is certainly better than searching forever and ever, and all of a sudden a, a, a search mission becomes a recovery mission, so or a rescue mission becomes recovery. So there's lots of fishing safety that you know really deserves a little bit more attention, and add to it then vessel length. No, it really does because, like, you know, a life preserver, yes, no, it's, you're not going to last long in the North Atlantic, but the thing is, if you can stay above water, like, you know, buddy that went in on the water, I seen him off the wharf, you know, he had a set of chest waders on, and um, guess what? He, he, You're going right down. He had nothing on him, and he's going right down. Yeah, the waiters, look, I saw some salmon fishing once get in a bit of trouble with the waiters filling up with water. You know, they're, they're always going to wear something to protect themselves from the grease and the fish oil and all the rest of it. But everything comes with an associated risk on these fishing vessels. And it's not for me to really say because I'm not a professional fisherman. And they will tell you that, you know, the some of the life jackets and other things, they're just cumbersome and they get in the way of doing their job. But, uh, yeah, I'll let them chime in on it. Yeah, you know, and 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 that's that to me is issues. Like I said, like, you know, I'm from the mainland originally, but um, and I know in Ontario, like, you have to have a life jacket on you when you're when you're out boating or anything like that. You have to have it on. No, you don't. You have to have it in the boat. You don't have to have it on. That's a that's a national rule set by the Transportation Board, which, I, like I mentioned off the top, I find that to be just a bizarre one. I mean, especially in a smaller aluminum boat, for instance, you can swamp that in a heartbeat, especially if you're out on the salt water. So I can sit on my life jacket to cushion my rump from the seat, but I don't have to have it on, which I don't think makes any sense. No, you're you're absolutely right there. And, and I, I digress there because I thought that was law in Ontario. Uh, And if it is, I could be wrong, but the national standard does not say you have to have it on. You simply have to have it available. But I I see these boats going in and out all the time, and there's not a life jacket brought or nothing like that. And, uh, you know, I just, I think there should be something brought up about that, because that would save a lot of lives. Well, thankfully, you brought it up here this morning, Rob, and we appreciate it. Okay, then, Patty, you have a great day. The very same to you. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, what should I do here now, Dave? Will I take Jen? And Jim can hold for a second. Okay, let's go to Jen Dion with Persistence Theatre. Jen, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. How are you doing? Top shelf today. How about you? Oh, I'm wicked, thanks, because uh, I'm actually calling to talk about something that is good news. Uh, I work with Persistence Theatre Company, and we have an amazing show on the go right now. It's called Stolen Sisters, and it is uh, written by Linu playwright Leodon Helena, who's from the West Coast. She's a member of the Halapu Nation, and it's performed by the amazing uh, Deantha Edmonds, who is, of course, our world-renowned uh, Inuk soprano. I think I saw something float by my feed a little while ago. This was supposed to be always an outdoor uh, performance, but now indoor. Tonight, before we get into anything else about it, does that did I see that or? Yeah, sure. Okay. This is a, the show normally performs in the round in the Heart Garden, which is that reconciliation space on the grounds of Government House, and Her Honor has been wonderful to allow us to perform it in such a meaningful spot. But the ground conditions are a bit wet today, so we also uh, are so grateful to First Light for hosting us over in their First Light Centre, which is the former United 
uh, church on Cochrane Street. So they have a beautiful, they use that as a beautiful performance space now. So we're just going to move the show in there tonight at 6 o'clock. So we wanted to make sure everybody knows about that. Tell us about the show. The show is a 75-minute one-woman show. Deantha performs as three Beothic women who we know existed uh, from historical record. There's the child, Ube. There's the woman who we may have heard of, Shauna Didit. And then there's the elder, Sancho Tony, who lived in the 19th and early part of the 20th century. And from this perspective, we hear about their experience as Beothic women. The term stolen sisters, of course, infers that their stories are not necessarily happy ones. But in addition to the truth that is unpacked in the show, there's also beauty. There's also celebration of who these women were when they existed as a member of the Beothic culture from long ago. So we think it's a really important story to share with everyone. And St. John's is just our first stop. We're going to the west coast of Newfoundland in early September. And in 2023, the show is going to tour throughout Labrador and the province. And of course, there's a lot of talk. I mean, we spoke with Chief Beasel Joe last week about Shana Did It. Do I pronounce that properly? Boy, I struggle with those names. Well, you know, and I think uh, you you are pronouncing it correctly. Uh, and starting to put those names in our mouths, I think, is a really I'm really glad you're on that journey for that. So that's definitely a journey I'm on as a as a settler here. Um, the truth of Shauna Ditta is, it's I mean, all of the stories of our Beothic have been told, of course, through uh, a white settler lens. Uh, so re-looking at all of that from the perspective uh, of an Indigenous lens, sometimes there is some uh, truth that has been obscured in, I mean, for instance, there was a, a Newfoundland textbook that infamously uh, for years said that one of the reasons the Beothic died out is that they were in conflict with the Mi'kmaq which is not true. <laughs> so one of those, you know, there's no evidence for that. And in fact, there's evidence to the contrary. There was a, quite a lot of cult, uh, cross-cultural support and intermarriage. So um, things like that. But of course, as many other truths that we don't often face, because it's not obviously a pretty part of our colonial history. So to hear about it in a story uh, storytelling way with a play in front of us where we can sometimes let it, you know, you don't just read the words, you let it sit in your heart a little bit. So that's what we're really hoping this story brings to life. Uh, good luck with it. If someone wants to attend this evening or any time, do they need to buy tickets in advance, show up at the door? What's the deal? Well, that's a really great, I'm really glad you brought us to that because uh, tickets are $30. Unless you self-identify as someone who is Indigenous, and if so, then the tickets are free. So our tickets can all be obtained by going to our website, PersistenceTheatre.com. And for your West Coast listeners, we're going to be in St. George's, Flat Bay, DeGrau, and Cowhead in early September. So watch for us out there as well. Nice new facility in Cowhead. And, of course, the other story regarding the Beothic that we also broached with uh, Chief Measle Joe was the repatriation of the two Beothic remains over 190 years they've been gone. So Nona Sabasut and Damas Dwit. Demazdewit, yes. Okay, not bad. Not too bad. Demazdewit is a part of our play, too, because, of course, she was Sean and Dedit's aunt. 
So uh, talking about that and how their skulls were taken is uh, also part of what you hear about in our story. Very cool. And of course, their remains are at the Romans while they look for a permanent home, a respectful, uh, sacred ground for them to be laid finally to rest. I appreciate the time, Jen. Uh, break a leg. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, the interim leader of the NDP and the MHA for St. John's Centre, Jim Din, is in the queue. What's on Jim's mind? Stay tuned. Welcome back to the show. Let us now go. Line number two, say good morning to the interim leader of the NDP and the MHA for St. John's Centre, Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you for having me on. Happy to do it. Uh, just want to comment on the, uh, the announcement yesterday with the hydrogen wind announcement on the West Coast, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly something that uh, our party has been pushing uh, and, and, and emphasizing the need to transition to this green economy and to get the benefit of it. But we've been arguing, and we put forward a, this needs to be done within a an overall plan. And one of the one of the things that we did call for, put forward in the private members' resolution, was the need for a government to implement just transition legislation uh, that would enshrine a lot of the protections in law and, uh, and, and, and would be answerable to the House of Assembly. A little bit bothersome that, uh, that both the uh, government and the official opposition voted against it, but nevertheless, I think now is an opportunity to start looking at that, that uh, legislation that is going to ensure high-quality union jobs, well-paying jobs that, that's basically going to support workers who want to enter into the new industries. And I, from our point of view, legislation that's going to protect the environment. I heard previous callers talk about the need to protect the environment, but also to make sure that local communities are the primary beneficiaries. Great to have these MOUs and these uh, con- uh, uh, these contracts and these deals signed between um, uh, leaders of countries and to have uh, the business community there, but it's got to come down to that we've got to have it, uh, a plan in place uh, that, uh, that that that's going to make sure that Newfoundland is the primary beneficiary. But what does that even look like? I mean, for me, you know, same thing, the argument happens all the time, is, uh, especially in oil developments, yep. is the racket over who gets the job, who does the top sides work, who does all the subsea work. He, generally, we get a bit in the benefits agreements, but then some of the bigger work goes to lay down yards in Texas or in Korea or whatever the case may be. So for you, what does primary beneficiary look like? Is it jobs? Because even when I hear reference to royalty, a royalty on what? The water, I assume, because royalty on the wind sounds a little bit silly. How do you encapsulate a royalty there? Water, we can measure it, you know, by volume. So what does the primary beneficiary look like to you? And you know what? And that's an excellent uh, question and one that I think has to be, that that I envision, that we envision in terms of any uh, any, uh, legislation. It's going to start with, look, uh, and I'll go back to the health accord, the consultation and the dialogue that they engage in. And I think it's going to have to start with, and and, and it's not too late to start this, uh, to have that dialogue with communities, with uh, unions, with the business, with the people of this province as to what is it we want to see. Because right now, to your point, What's there to say, well, here's what work is, uh, must be done in this province, or here's what we're looking for to nail it down and make sure that it's not just simply up to the, uh, the whim of whatever contract is signed. The other thing, too, I guess, uh, Patty, is where does, where does Newfoundland fit in terms of, uh, let's say, the Atlantic region, uh, in terms of uh, you know, uh, making sure that we all benefit here, that Newfoundland gets its fair share. So it's a very good point. To me, uh, I've heard, I think it was Goody Hutch, 
I speak yesterday about saying, welcome. He said, all people from Alberta should come home. Okay, great. But what is the, the what are the jobs that we want here? What, uh, do we want to see the production uh, of, of these of the wind turbines here within the province, or is this something that we would enter into a partnership with the Atlantic region so that to, uh, that you know about a rising tide raises all boats? And, and th- those are the those are the questions we we uh, we very much wanted to uh, to uh, have addressed in uh, just translation uh, legislation. But it does start with a, with dialogue, and even to hear like to hear these questions raised by you, those are the questions that we need addressed as well. Yeah, you know, the collaboration amongst Atlantic Canadian provinces sounds good, but we know the Irvings are expanding their capability in New Brunswick buying an electrolyzer, I think it was two two megawatts or something, uh, to begin their expansion. The province of Nova Scotia has approved five new wind projects regarding green hydrogen. Here's my problem with that. Number one, there's going to be territorial battles. Everyone's going to want to keep everything they can inside their own shop or provincial boundaries. Secondly, the word that jumps out of all the news stories for me, well, the words are sprint, quick, rapid, all these things because everyone's trying to get out ahead of it be the first in line consequently speed if we look at the tortoise and the hare (laughs) sometimes speed kills and speed can be to our detriment here so while the competitive nature is very real the provinces are scrambling to get out in the in front of this scrambling to be the ones capitalized by these big companies that can leave us in a funny spot here so i get it opportunities we need to seize them strike while the iron's hot all of these things but that can leave a lot of stones unturned that we really need desperately to kick over yeah and look, my colleague Jordan Brown uh, from Labrador reminds me uh, that the, uh, the, uh, that the iron uh, that the iron ore companies are already moving towards uh, towards uh, uh, towards electrification of their process. They're all, because they realize they've got to ship to Europe where they're looking for green steel. So the fact is that it's already happening. I think it's uh, like. <laughs> was it less uh, less uh, speed more or less haste more speed? Uh, I think in some cases here, what we, we have an opportunity here to get this right. I look. I, I'll be honest with you. I do not want to be uh, subjected to uh, what we're subjected to in, uh, in the House of Assembly with regards to Muskrat Falls, where two parties are blaming each other for the fiasco. So to me, here is an opportunity where let, let's sit down. What will this legislation uh, uh, look like? It involves all of us here. What is it we want out of this? What are the areas where we can cooperate? Uh, it shouldn't be business, I guess, necessarily leading it. It should be the, the people of this province through government, and it should be about setting a climate and energy bill that sets clear targets, that uh, guarantees all uh, that, uh, that uh, in some ways, the legislation looking for ensuring that all uh, green energy re- the re- remains in public hands. But nevertheless, the fact is, uh, I don't, I, I think we've got to be careful about moving ahead too quickly, but let's make sure that we do it in a way with a backdrop of just transition legislation that is uh, that will, in consultation with people of this province, that will protect workers, that will protect, uh, that will set out clear expectations in, in legislation as, as to what we hope to achieve. What are the jobs we want? What are the, uh, uh, very clearly that we set the agenda? Not corporations who will come in and maximize the benefits to themselves. Okay, so uh, absolutely, and I'm all about it. Look, let's take what we can get and maximize the returns to the province and create jobs, expand tax base, do whatever we can to be part of, whether it be a just transition or whatever else under the sun. Do you think that we may 
potentially derail the conversation with equating with muskrat because that, with muskrat i'm the only customer my money went in the however many billion dollars of taxpayer money's already gone into the project all of us rate pairs of what it means to be involved with the muskrat falls project do you think we maybe put an unfair light on these hydrogen proposals when we use muskrat in the same sentence because they're two different things in my mind there uh, and, and i guess it's a cautionary tale to me i think uh, this is an opportunity for newfoundland and labrador and and for the people of the province uh the cautionary tale of uh, of, of muskrat falls is look let's make sure when we do this can we do this right instead of rushing into it let's put down what what was missing where do we go wrong and how do we avoid this uh and how do we uh, and how do we make sure we had the long-term benefits that it doesn't become an albatross. Look, the fact is, you look at you look at other countries in in Europe, uh, and uh, that they already have they already have just transition legislation, and they've already have guarantees in place. So we're not reinventing the wheel, but it's out there. Can we do it? Sure, can. Uh, I, I just think we. Uh, um, and I know I listened to Dennis Key talk about a boondoggle. I don't see. I I, I do believe that uh, done right, this is not going to be done a boondoggle, but it's going to come down to let's be smart about this and let's uh, uh, and because that's this is where the world is going we know that Europe I think announced the European Union announced in in, the, in May that they are uh, setting up a 315 billion dollar euro or 407 billion dollar Canadian fund to transition away from oil and towards renewables and uh, and, other, and green energy in within five years. They're already moving in that, but they've got structures in place to take advantage of it. So if we're going to do that, I, I, Newfoundland is, uh, when you look at it positioning-wise, uh, we don't have to worry about going through uh, different provincial jurisdictions, but can we not at least make sure that, um, that we, we don't repeat the uh, things with regards to the agriculture mm-hmm. industry that we have, we max. Uh, what is it we want? And that's Patty, where I'm going. I, I understand what you're saying, and I and I agree with that. And I hesitate at bringing, uh, uh, putting even Muskrat Falls in with it. But I just don't need to be listening in the House of Assembly uh, down the road uh, to uh, or future MHA about how we went wrong. Here is an opportunity, but it's going to mean conversation with you, uh, like uh, as a citizen. It's going to mean uh, as the unions. Uh, let's let's do what we did with the health accord and let's make sure we come up with something that's, that's sure. going to be the long term and, and not just you know, and just not, not just simply look at uh, our eyes gloss over when we see all this and, uh, and figure our, our, uh, we're safe. I think it's going to require hard work on our part, but we can do that. There's lots of EU money available to, and you look yep. at the, uh, the deal struck in the United States, the legislation regarding their transition plans. There's tons of money there, whether it be for uh, renewable energy and or critical minerals. There's lots of private sector capital out there. There's a lot of things happening and it's happening very quickly, but that doesn't mean that we can't do it right and make sure we are on top. Uh, Jim, I'm off to the news. Appreciate the time. You take care, sir. Thank you, Patty. All the best. Bye-bye. Jim Din, interim leader of the NDP and the member for St. John's Centre. Break time. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Morning, Barry. You're on the air. Okay, you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, perfect. First-time caller. Welcome to the show. Uh, I just heard a, a call Dennis O'Keefe made, and uh, Boondoggle, he t- spoke about the common sense refundering. He probably should have done a little bit more research on that because of a Boondoggle, because it was shut down for 10 years. Uh, I know the government probably put some money into it in the late 60s and early 70s. Did, yeah. 
last 35 years. A uh, company from uh, Cumberland Farms bought it in 87. It went down. There's a couple of owners since then. Uh, there when COVID started, we, we shut down. There were still people employed there. I was one of them. And now an uh, American company got it took over, and they're spending millions and millions of dollars, not from the government. The government put in a few dollars to keep it on a warm oil, but there's only a, a pebble to must be spent there. And yeah, it was like 16 or 17 million, I think. You go out and look at the parking lot out there now and what people is employed there and what people have been employed there in the last 35 years, it's, it's a lot of dollars that went in, not government money new money to Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I mean, I don't know exactly how or why he thinks Convoy Chance was a boondoggle. It was shuttered for a long time. There are some potential boondoggle implications with the environmental liabilities that we face, but that's down the road, even though before long we're going to have to deal with it. I don't know how many times it changed hands. At one point it was sold for a dollar, if I remember correctly. Now, this new company that's come in with the biodiesel and all the uh, cooking oils and all that stuff, good for them. Now, I know they don't employ as many jobs as as at its peak in the refinery business, but yeah, I mean, come by chance, been a major contributor for a long time. And that's just going to be just short and sweet because I'm not a very good speaker. You're but, doing great. Uh, Dennis O'Keefe, it's no trouble to tell what party he's going to plan on running for, that's which is a little rumor. And as far as I'm concerned, that was just a political ploy to get a dig in. That's all I. Well, he he, uh, certainly speaks to the uh, same or similar issues when he calls, and he's all in on the oil business, and he makes no bones about it that he's no fan of the Trudeau liberals, and I don't think it's uh, unfair to think that he would be leaning towards the Conservative Party of Canada if and when he ever did run or how he chooses to support one party or another. But, I mean, like most people that call on those types of issues— They've got an allegiance. They cheer for one crew or another. They cheer for one industry or another. So, I mean, it's not hard for me to tell, and I'm sure it's not hard for listeners to tell. A lot of people, most everyone's got an agenda of some sort. Uh, of course. Anyway, I just, like I said, I'm getting up in age now, but uh, I, I, this is the first time I call, and I, I, I just couldn't let it pass. I appreciate you making time for the show. It was the first time. or do it again. But. Have a good day. All the same to you, uh, Barry. All the best, then. Same to you, is what I meant to say. <laughs> Line number one, Ross, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yes, I'm calling uh, in now on behalf of some of the people off Change Islands that's uh, doing a more or less a protest against a decision that our our town council uh, is making in Change Islands. Actually, there was a, a public meeting last night. They had a good turnout. I... I been told, but a lot of angry people. Our town is adopting this new municipal uh, 10-year municipal plan. The people, uh, the majority of change towns don't want that. Uh, they, they they forward a petition to the town council with 103 names on it. I think the population, uh, full-time livers in change towns, about 135 to 145. And the town, uh, our new council that was elected last fall. Uh, most of them being uh, not from Chains Island, but lives there, so they had the right to be on the council. And, uh, and our mayor uh, seems to got her heels dug in and is not going to let up and let and do what the people wants. I believe VOCM been invited in there to uh, do interviews to the people and and bring this live to to uh, let everybody know what's happening. Well, what is happening? What inside the plan is a problem? 
uh, well, the plan, the people of Change Islands don't want their town, uh, rural Newfoundland, Outport town, changed into, I guess, uh, a bigger, uh, the rules and regulations like you have in bigger c- cities. And once you adopt that plan, uh, you have to follow the book. And uh, uh, people are scared what, what the plan is. I know they've got a consultant in Change Islands right now, and it costs the town, uh, the, the taxpayers of the town, $25,000 for to get this consultant in there to do up this plan. Now, in my in my books, I spent some time on the town council myself. I had uh, eight years as mayor and four years as deputy mayor. I think the mayor and our council should have invited the public meeting and uh, explained to the people what the government uh, uh, requests them to do and, uh, and then see if the people wanted that before she spent the $25,000. Now uh, the $25,000 is spent, and she's going ahead full speed with this plan. And, and the people, I'm, I'm not a resident of Change Islands anymore, but I do own property in Change Islands. I go there. It's my home. Uh, I was born and bred there, but I live in Gander now. But uh, I go there every week, and I got property up there, and I'm a t- uh, property taxpayer. Uh, I think there's going to be another meeting tomorrow night, and I, I think the, the mayor should draw her horns in and reconsider this and and, uh, and and do what the majority of the people wants done, not what her and a few of them wants. So is it only changes coming for Change Islands proper, or is it for other municipalities to be involved, like what they talk about is regionalization or cooperation or anything else, or is it simply just changes coming in your community and everyone else on the outside? No, well, if if everyone else on the outside that's in a, in uh, incorporated towns, like I, I got a friend, I want to mention a town, I want to mention a name, but he's a deputy mayor of another town that I talked to, and I came across uh, their council several times, and not a 10-year plan, but a five-year plan. And he said to me, why would change towns, a place of small change towns, adopt a, a 10-year plan when they don't know what they're getting involved? But this town herself, wouldn't accept that uh, they just want to rule the town the way they always ruled it. And I talked with our, our uh, former mayor uh, on Change Islands the other day, and he told me that it used to come across the desk of Change Islands uh, several times. But no, we got our own, own their own town bylaws, their own uh, conversations that we made, and, and we want Change Islands. I mean, it's a unique community. It's a fishing village. People don't want to pay property taxes on their fish stages. If they want to build a wharf or want to build states, they want to do that. They want to go to the town and the town's going to let them do it or it's going to block somebody's view. I mean, Change Islands is, a, is a, a town and the fish stages and the stores is what brings tourists into Change Islands. And that's only one thing that might happen. And uh, I don't know what's in the plan yet because the plan hasn't been uh, uh, presented to the people. And that should have been done uh, uh, before the plan was even talked about it, see if the people wanted that plan or not. Well, understanding what the plan is is always a helpful place to start. Uh, yeah. Did you already have the protest, or is that coming up, Ross? I can't well, remember. the protest, there, there's been a protest going on most of the summer with the people, uh, uh, well, the signs put up now. There was a public meeting last night. There was a petition sent around, uh, carried around. You could, uh, and the petition presented to council. There's a petition gone to the minister. And, uh, you know, the, the, the hack states, like right now we got, um, like, man and wife on, on the town council. In my version, I don't think a media can, uh, family member should be on a one town council. But uh, we can't, uh, the minister would have to change that. But that's, that's allowed. 
But uh, it shouldn't be. Our last council had the uh, same thing. Like, you know, immediate family members on one council. Uh, you know what that, what that is. is. There's always a conflict of interest. But uh, we can't change that now in this conversation, but uh, that's something the minister should look at down the road. It should be put into act that the man and wife or brothers and sisters should not be on the town council. But as we speak right now, that's allowed. Now, this, uh, this plan that the council is putting together is going to change. Change Island. Change Island's been there incorporated since uh, 1954. And I think we should leave Change Islands the way that it is. And if our new mayor that moved into Change Islands can't uh, go by the ways and the lifestyle that our residents of Change Islands have been living all their life, she should go back where she come from. Thanks for this, Ross. Good luck. Stay in touch. Bye-bye. All the best. All right, last break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Line number four, Colin, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. Uh, my name is Colin Mahoney. I'm Colin from Cornerbrook. I called yesterday morning, but apparently didn't have enough time to get me on. But I went into the Valley Mall on Friday, down past, and I went into the Dollarama, and I bought my chocolate, as I usually do. I came out, and there was a bunch of people getting lottery tickets, and I said, oh, I'll get myself a ticket. So quite a few people in line. By the time I got my ticket, it took about maybe 10 minutes, I suppose. It didn't matter. I didn't mean you never had nothing to do. But while I was in line, I noticed a bag against the wall by this machine where a kid could put money in and win a toy. And while I was in this line, I was there 10 minutes, and nobody went near that bag. So when I got my ticket, I walked over, looked in the bag, and I said, wow, that's full. Somebody's forgot their bag. So I got a hold of the lady in the ladies' wear store, directly attached to the back of the Dollarama, and she came out, and I said, look, somebody's forgot their bag. So she asked people in, their, in her store, did anyone have the bag, lose it, leave a bag there? They said no. So between myself and her, we finally got a hold of somebody with the mall security, and I gave the gentleman the bag. And so what I wanted, anybody that went back to that Valley Mall that afternoon and went back in and thought, well, okay, somebody's got my bag. The bag is at the at the security at Dollarama. I gave it to the security guy. So that's all I wanted to let somebody know, Patty, just in case they thought the bag was gone forever. It's not. It's in the Valley Mall security. Good spot for us. So I'm sure they went back having a look around, and hopefully they will make their way to security and get the bag. You say you go into Dollar Ram to get your chocolate. What kind of chocolate do you get there? I uh, Smarties. I love Smarties, nice. and I love Kit Kat. And I'm bad on the uh, the peanut butter uh, cups. And I, I just eat a lot of chocolate. I, and I will. I eat a lot of sugar. Every, uh, Patty, people talk about sugar is bad for you. I don't know. I eat a hell of a lot of sugar. You wouldn't believe how much sugar I eat, but it seems to keep me going. I don't know. Ah, look, what, whatever it takes. So I do appreciate a peanut butter cup, i got to tell you. And the Smarties, do you eat them in any sort of uh, hierarchy of what color first? Uh, sometimes I I do. I uh, come to a point where I take out a handful out of a bag. I don't buy the boxes anymore. I buy the bag, and I'll take out a hand. Sometimes I'll be at the table probably doing a bit of writing or a bit of artwork or whatever I'm at, and I'll put the red ones to one side and the blue ones to one side, and I usually take them like four at a time, and <laughs> I got it down to a system. <laughs> Always important to have a system. Colin, I'm glad you called this morning. If you lost your bag at the Valley Mall, Colin brought it to the security office. So that's where you can collect it. Okay, Patty. You have a good day. Stay safe. The very same to you. Thanks for this. God bless. All the yeah. best. Bye, Colin. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. Okay, so when you eat your Smarties, do you eat the red ones last? Do you suck them very slowly or crunch them very fast? Eat that candy-coated chocolate. But tell me when I ask when you eat your Smarties, do you eat the red ones last? 
Good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.